0: Era 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 great to see you all. Thank you so much for being here. We are going to have debate number 11 today, truth versus compromise. Truth versus compromise. Thank you for your adaptive schedules and your flexibility. Let's start with a poll. Let's start with a poll to see where uh, we fall out in our views here in the room today. Do you prioritize truth or compromise? Number one, truth is always the highest priority. Number two, sometimes I give in but I still hold truth to be the highest priority. Number three, I prioritize compromise, but I'm still committed to truth. Number four, peace is the highest priority. I know this is a a difficult one, um, but uh, let's see where folks fall out here. Give you a moment to cast your vote. Okay, let's see the results. Okay. Very interesting. 0% say truth is always the highest priority. 0% say peace is the highest priority. It's all in the middle. 38%. Sometimes I give in, but I still hold truth to be the highest priority. And 63%, I prioritize compromise, but I am still committed to truth. Very interesting. Okay. So friends, one might think that absolutism is a sign of strength. If one has, quote unquote, moral clarity, then they shouldn't budge an inch from their position. This is a very popular approach today in both religious and political discourse. If you are not absolute, you are often accused of being wishy-washy, or a moral relativist, or weak in principle, or guilty of cowardly betrayal of principle. One is told it is a cop-out to claim it's complicated, or we need more nuance. We might even expect to see an argument supporting absolute fealty to a relativistic stance. To be sure, a very strong Jewish case could be made for absolute truth, especially from Jewish sources prior to modernity. Consider that the Torah says in Shemot 23.7, midover sheker tirchak, you should run from falsehood, not just don't lie, run away from everything false. In the ancient world, the question was less what is good than will you do that which we know to be good? In modernity, as skepticism emerged, the question of what was good was was itself asked more frequently and more searchingly. The question was no longer as much about the will to do that which everyone knew to be good, as more ethicists focused more on their attention on the intellectual deliberation process to discover the good. Nonetheless, a very strong Jewish case could be made both from sources coming from before the advent of modern thought and since in opposition to absolutist thinking in favor of compromise. Here is a passage from the Babylonian Talmud, Sanhedrin 6b. Rav Yehoshua ben Karcha says, it is a mitzvah to seek compromise. Compromise in Hebrew is pashara, to seek Peshara. As it is written, truth and peace, judgment, should you judge in your gates. It would seem that where there is judgment, there is no peace. And where there is peace, there is no judgment. What is the judgment that incorporates peace? Compromise. The rabbis applied value not only to compromise in the courts, but also when it comes to religious ideas. In the Talmud, Bava Metzia 30b, Rav Yochanan is quoted as saying that Jerusalem was destroyed in the time of the Romans only because the people judged according to the Torah. I want you to hear that again, that it's not, it's not the wicked oppressor's fault, it is our fault that our city was destroyed. Why? Because we went according to the letter of the law, not according to higher values. The astonished reply is, what kind of judgment should they have applied? That of the sorcerers? And the reply, what Rabbi Yochanan meant was that litigants insisted on strict enforcement of the law and were unwilling to compromise. The Rambam, Maimonides, affirms this value for religious compromise, Hilchot twenty-two 22.4. This inclination, friends, in favor of compromise, is found in rabbinic discussions of financial matters. It says in Megillah 28a, when Rabbi, when Rabbi Nehunya ben Hakane was asked the secret of his unusual longevity in life, one of the traits he mentioned was, I was always willing to yield in monetary matters. Okay, one of the ways we would translate that today potentially is avoid litigious matters take a high road to avoid litigious matters because that stress and anxiety and tension and costs will potentially add more suffering and shortness of life. We might think that the benefits of compromise would be apparent not only in the financial realm, but also when it comes to political action. We see though that that's hardly always the case. To see how a failure of compromise has played out in just one arena, American history is replete with the tragic consequences of such a failure. The Civil War, for example, was the result of 11 southern states refusing to deal with an elected president who was opposed to slavery and their attempt to secede and drive union forces out by military force. Even though the Confederacy was defeated, the solid South has retained an antipathy towards President Lincoln for a century and a half. Of course, this example also demonstrates the need to know when to compromise compromise, and when to stand firm. The implications of a hypothetical decision by the North to compromise on the issue of slavery are too painful to contemplate. But compromise, while at times painful, has produced enduring results. During the New Deal, President Franklin D. Roosevelt concentrated on economic issues rather than civil rights and most often created policies based on a consensus of experts. In June of 1934, President Roosevelt created the Committee on Economic Security, the CES, for the task of developing, quote unquote, at once security against several of the great disturbing factors in life, especially those which relate to unemployment and old age. While the CES members quickly, by January, 1935, approved a way to create the social security system as well as programs for unemployment insurance. They did not find a means to include health insurance. And even the funding of the social safety net programs that were created depended on a regressive tax on individuals. Once you pass the maximum threshold, you don't pay a penny more of tax. On the other hand, it cannot be denied that millions of elderly, disabled, and unemployed Americans faced starvation without this legislation. So overall, the law has benefited our society despite its imperfections. It is no secret that compromise seems to be a dirty word in Washington these days. For the last decade, we have seen partisan gridlock that has not been seen in generations. It's almost as if we've gone from a situation in which compromise was the goal to one in which we have only two opposing camps, with each one devoted to its own truth and demanding action in keeping with that truth. How can we learn to recognize that truth as a value has different valences in different contexts to balance a religious commitment to truth with a social commitment to cultural and moral relativism? Rav Shigar, the great postmodern religious Zionist thinker, grappled with this concept in his work, uh, Faith Shattered and Restored. He wrote, there's going to be two slides here with his quote. That picture is not him. Um, you'll you'll, you'll see why this Indian woman is there in a moment. Similarly, what is our position regarding sati, widow burning, which is still practiced by some in India? From our perspective, this custom is extremely immoral. Yet some women believe that burning themselves alongside their husband's bodies is the best thing for the souls souls of all concerned. The perplexed postmodernist will have double vision. While railing against the practice, he will also be able to see the issue from the point of view of those who practice sati, that to prevent postmodernism from sliding into absurdity, we must set boundaries. Where is the line at which the postmodernist will refuse to accept the other's values? What criteria and methods should be used for setting such boundaries? And can one propose other ways of coping with the paradox of pluralism, which is amplified in the postmodern era? We no longer expect a grand ultimate justice. Such a justice is unjustifiable and nowhere to be found. The best we can hope for is a specific, weak justice. The ju- excuse me, The justice that justice is generated not by a series of metaphysical arguments, but by human discourse and compromise. As Gurevitz ex- emphasizes, by letting go of the need for hard justice, two rival sides can begin to communicate and resolve profound conflicts pragmatically by the contact struggle between conflicting conceptions of supreme justice. There are several possible models of soft justice, all relinquishing the presumption of absoluteness. Yet he notes soft justice has its own limits and at bottom relies on non-relativistic assumptions which as the belief in human rationality whose absence would preclude fertile discourse and accord. So Ramshigar is not only postmodern on truth as a, as a neo-Hasidic thinker, that we should not seek absolute truth, but rather weak truth, and so too not absolute justice, but weak justice. We are we are in attention. We are cultural relativists. We want to honor we want to honor India. We don't want to be cultural imperialists and say, "Oh, us white Americans or us white Israelis." Of course, not all Israelis are white or Americans are white, but um, us Western states we want to impose a higher morality on upon India, who doesn't really understand higher morality. We don't want to be cultural imperialists. On the other hand, we want to uphold the commitment to universal human rights. And we think widow burning is a bad thing. So, how do we balance our commitment to universal justice with our commitment to cultural relativity, a moral relativity? And he says we do indeed have to set boundaries um, and we do have to seek some level of compromise in, in our pursuit of a weak of a weak justice. Richard Rorty in his book, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity, argued that we should set aside the quest to find truth and rather embrace the notion that truth is created. We talked about this last time. This is fundamental to postmodern thought and something that Rev Shigar also arrived at through Rory and through Kabbalah. The broken vessels leave us only with sparks of clarity, but no full clarity. Friends, this is important. Rev Shigar is a Kabbalist. And so he roots his post-modernity not in modern philosophy, but in Shvira takelim. right? If you recall, tikkun olam. Tikkun olam, repairing the world from a Kabbalistic sense, is there was Shvira takelim, There was the oneness of God, the one light in the world, and then there was fragmentation and brokenness. The, the vessels broke, and the light was scattered into everyone and everything. And tikkun olam, repair of the world, is to gather up the light, gather up the sparks. Whenever we do a mitzvah with Kavana, we do something good, religious, ethical, and we do it with an intentionality, a deep religious intentionality, we lift the sparks up, we reunite God, so to speak, we we heal the world. And so it's from that place of brokenness, of truth, brokenness of justice, that um, the Kabbalah is moving into neo-chathidut here for Rav New Age thinker, uh, now we're gonna make a big pivot into New Age thinker Eckhart Toll, who wrote, the Catholic and other churches are actually correct when they identify relativism, the belief that there is no absolute truth to guide human behavior as one of the evils of our time. Oh, what? But you won't find absolute truth if you look for it where it cannot be found, in doctrines, ideologies, sets of rules or stories. What do they all have in common? They are made up of thought. Thought can at best point to the truth, but it never is the truth. Get that? Thought is not the truth. Thought points to the truth. Buddhists say, the finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. All religions are equally false and equally true, depending on how you use them, he writes. You can use them in them in the service of the ego, or you can use them in the service of the truth. If you believe only your religion is the truth, you are using it in the service of the ego. Used in such a way, religion becomes ideology and creates creates an illusory sense of superiority, as well as division between people. In the service of the truth, religious teachings represent signposts or maps left behind by awakened humans to assist you in spiritual awakening, that is to say, in becoming free of identification identification with form. So one might say that religions, when they are ends in themselves, are forms of idolatry. It would be like saying the moon is the finger pointing to the moon. No, all that is is the finger that is helping you see, right? But the moon is the moon. So too, God is God. Your religion is not an absolute truth. Your religion is a vehicle. And so too, he says, spiritually, the realm of the cognitive, the realm of thinking is only a vehicle towards a higher truth. It is not the truth itself. Given what Rorty, Toll, and Rav Shigar in very different ways all say, we can recognize that truth as a matter of religious devotion is different than truth as a matter of how we choose to live in society we do hold a commitment to truth, but also we have to understand that thought is only one dimension of how we reach truth. There is also a deeper realm of consciousness beyond thought. Here we can embrace both a bold spiritual quest for truth while also holding a humble relativity and pluralism. Joseph Schumpeter once wrote, to realize the relative validity of one's convictions, and yet stand for them unflinchingly, is what distinguishes civilized man from a barbarian, right? A barbarian says, I have the truth and you don't. A barbarian says, there is no truth. So eat, drink, and be merry. He says, you see the relativity, you have humility, and yet you still fight for your truth. We have to be intellectually honest, and yet still morally robust. Our skepticism must empower us rather than paralyze us. The rabbis taught in a fascinating midrash that truth would become a human construct ultimately. I love this. One of the most famous midrashim, if you've never learned it, it's very important. And then we're, we're going to conclude here and open up questions and thoughts. Rav Shimon said, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu came to create Adam, the ministering angels formed themselves into groups and parties, some of them saying, let him be created. While others urge, let him not be created. Thus it is written, chesed and truth. Chesed is is kindness or love. Chesed and truth fought together. Righteousness and peace combated each other. Chesed said, let him be created because he will dispense acts of love. Truth said, let him not be created because he is compounded of falsehood righteousness said let him be created because he will perform righteous deeds peace said let him not be created because he is full of strife so each angel is a virtue and they are arguing about whether humans should be created this is similar to our debate a week or two ago what did the Hu do God took truth and cast it to the ground as it says and truth was truth was thrown to the ground The ministering angel said before the Almighty, Master of the worlds, why do you put to shame your chief of courts? The Almighty replied, let truth rise from the ground. This is what is meant when it is written. Truth shall grow from the ground. Hevra, Hevra, friends, this means truth does not come down from the heavens. It does not descend from Harsinai, Mount Sinai. Truth emerges in a grassroots way, literally grassroots way, from humanity in relationship to the divine. Humans with our finite capacity cannot access the highest realms of truth. And so God needed to let go of such an absolute commitment, as it were, to allow humans to have freedom and autonomy. The rabbis understand that the power of interpretation was now in their hands. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs tried to push us from the binary of the absolute versus the relative. He wrote, it remains difficult fully to comprehend the vision at the heart of the Hebrew Bible, namely that religious truth is not universal nor relative, but covenantal. God reaches out to each people, faith and culture, asking it to be true to itself while recognizing that it is not the exclusive possessor of truth. Great harm has always been done to the world by religions when they seek to impose their truth on others by force, or when they treat those who do not share that truth as less than equal citizens. The key question today is whether there is a lowest point that can be reached in a failure to compromise. Will we heed the warning of Rabbi Yochanan, or will we think further into the political morass? One's character is not solely measured by their ideals, but also by how they're willing to compromise. There are, of course, values that should not be compromised. But for the sake of peace, often we must compromise our upper hand, even when we are certain of the truth. Rashi teaches that doing the right and the good refers to a compromise within the letter of the law. We need to learn to work in the real world with real people and not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. This is true at home, in community, in society, and internationally. Compromise can indeed be a vice when it's about one's own self gain at the expense of supporting others, but it can also be a virtue when it is about lifting up others. Okay, friends, I'm gonna pause here. I would love to hear your thoughts and questions and agreements or disagreements on Truth Versus Compromise. Feel free to unmute yourself.
1: Well, Rabbi, I would, I would start with a question of w- what is truth? What do we mean by that? And do we get in the absolute versus relativistic? Do we get, I mean, to me that that's kind of, you know, uh, if our beliefs of what is truth different and the rest of the discussion is hard to do.
0: Thank you. Yes, exactly. And so um, to pick up today, I suspect, that many of us are more pluralistic, and perhaps even relativistic, on theological truth than we are on empirical truth or on moral truth. For example, some of us might have very little tolerance for the culture of fake news that has emerged, that claims that medical research is itself untrustworthy, medical research is, um, uh, is corrupt, um, that, um, all media is itself, um, a distortion of truth inherently. Um, we may have much less tolerance towards a moral relativism that, um, uh, that suggests that things we take for granted as absolutes, like, or almost as absolutes, like do not kill, do not steal, um, you know, uh, and the like, um, are not to be twisted. And yet we might say, who is God? You know, I've got a lot of wiggle room there. And what happened at Mount Sinai? I've got a lot of wiggle room there. And so this question of truth is has many different realms. We can almost separate it into the theological, the moral, the empirical. How about the realm of conscience, right? or the realm of internal knowing? If I say I love you, I can't prove to you I love you, my child, my spouse, my parents. I can't prove that love, but I might know it to be true on a deep level of emotion. We might know something by intuition or through conscience that we know to be true. Like for example, genocide is evil. Like we can do intellectual acrobatics to prove genocide is evil, but do we really need to, right? Um something that we could almost take so for granted that rape is an evil, right? We take that for granted. Do I have to prove it's evil? Um, and so um so it is a great question. It's a great question. What exactly are we talking about, but with truth? Thank you, thank you, thank you, Mike. Who else wants to jump in here?
2: I think one of the best examples of compromise now is the new Israeli government. If they stuck to what they believed was absolute truth, then Meretz would never join with someone like Bennett. And you have to really appreciate Yet Lapid, who is the centrist, as bringing them all together and making compromise to get this government together. So I think, you know, how that we should get um, both Canadian and American governments to be so willing to put aside differences and um, work
0: together for the common good it's it's a great it's a great case to look at the most diverse coalition that israel's ever seen which by the way i'm not aware of any country in europe that has arab parties in their in their um coalitions It, it takes israel to be able to do that which is which is pretty astonishing Um, You know, that's not me saying that the Israeli government is perfect or the coalition is perfect, but it is pretty astonishing that that the country accused of being the most anti-Arab is the only one that's able to kind of pull that off. And so you see a level of collaboration between between such diverse parties, a a right wing, a left wing, an Arab party, um, in a way that some view as weak up oh, you have just abandoned your left wing principles by allowing Bennett to lead as a right winger you've abandoned by letting an era party in or the era party you've abandoned it by not being you know by letting Bennett be they can all be accused of being wishy-washy and giving up on the principles or they could be accused of using compromise not as a virtue but merely as a means to power it's only a self-gain compromise it's not it's not a, di- a compromise of dignity it's a, it's a compromise of power on the other hand It's worth thinking what it takes to create change and how you bring diverse people together. And yes, it means there's a whole bunch of stuff you can't get done together, right? You think about a marriage, in a marriage, um, even the best of marriages, you have to give up on a lot. I love hiking and they hate hiking. I love diving in this kind of shul and they hate that kind of shul. I I love eating Uh, vegan pastrami, and they hate vegan pastrami, right, that's a really random example. Um, And yet, so you gotta figure it out, you gotta figure it out. Yes, Matthew, thank you, thank you, Laura.
2: Okay, I was gonna say that one can look at the new Israeli government as not a compromise, but a finding of a different truth. And it was a truth that they could all accept which is that when you have a paralyzed government without a budget, without any programs, and a paralyzed society, they all believed in Kol Yisroel. And it was a patriotic truth that they found. There was an article I read along these lines that what they agreed upon was the need to move forward. And the commonality was you can't destroy the state of Israel by having five, six, seven, eight elections. It was not, it was both the opposition to Netanyahu and the greater truth that you have to have a society that functions. And it is a radical step for the different parties, because there is an underlying agreement that we can't go on the way we have been, and rather than Mm -hmm. fracture society.
0: Yeah, Matthew brings up a great point. And so I want to explore that framework a little bit. Two types of compromise. One says there is no higher truth that unites us, but I need X and you need Y. And so we're going to compromise on Z. There's nothing broader uniting us. You just need your needs and I need my needs. But Matthew brings in a different form of compromise that says there is a higher principle that unites us, And so I can give up on X or give up on Y because we are united by something broader, right? And so um, uh, it's not just a tit for tat. It's not, I give you this, you give me that. It is there, we need to move forward. We need to hold the country together. There is a broader principle, right? And so we can hold this together, right? And so um, if there is a love and a family, we can hold the family together, even if we have all this conflict, right? We can hold a country together if there is some united patriotism or some united value or whatever the case is. That of course is why Jews love each other most when we are attacked. And when we're not attacked, we are at each other's throats. Once we are united by a sense of existential threat, we are united by, um, and that's in America, friends. I know we, we, um, we, we have some non-Americans here. Well, I guess I, I'm American, but I'm also Canadian with Lauren Blatt. Um, but, but here in America, we have very little uniting us. Um, there is very little common narrative that Americans are facing a common threat and are united by that common threat. You would have, you would have thought it would have come out in the pandemic. Oh, a pandemic. It's like a war. So now we're united, but actually the pandemic divided the country even more. Whereas in Israel, when you see a war or the like, you see a country that becomes um, in many ways, um, in many ways very united. And so, um, th- yes, I-, I think Matthew brings up a great point uh, in America of how, um, uh, excuse me, in Israel, of how this new coalition was able to compromise, uh, or actually, Matthew, didn- didn- doesn't call it compromise. They were able to transcend differences towards a higher plane of agreement. Uh, Thank you. I-,
2: I would use a different word, not transcend. They would agree that while the differences were fundamental, yeah. there was a core value they could agree upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you yeah. go back in American political history and you think about Bob Dole and Teddy Kennedy, who became sponsors of a number of mental health bills because they had children, nieces, nephews with the same medical issues. It transcends the politics. And what's lacking today at local, state, county, federal level is the ability, because of 24-7 news, to forge those agreements on certain things. There are bills getting passed in Congress now. They're getting bills passed in the state legislature unanimously, because there is still some of that civic virtue, which is another lecture you talk right. about.
0: You know, what Matthew's raising, and then I want to move to the next voice, um, is also, I think, very true about those who are opting out of American Jewish life. For those of us who are, are totally bought in, knowing the people here, I think that's probably all of us who feel like, I'm in. I'm in. Yes, I'll get alienated sometimes. Yes, I'll be upset by a policy. This Rabbi offended me, or this board made a terrible decision, or you know someone in the community hurt me. But like we're bought in. like We're not going to leave because someone alienates us. For other Jews, if they are alienated or disagree with policies, they opt out. They opt out. We see that among younger generations all the more so. They're going to opt out. And so what it means to be a member of the community is not I get everything I want, and if it's not 10 out of 10, I quit shul or I quit being a member of the community. It means like, okay, a community is complex. It's gonna make a lot of bad decisions. It's gonna make some fair decisions, but ones I disagree with, but I'm here anyways. I'm not just gonna quit over it, right? And that is a a difficult thing for some young Jews who have a weaker Jewish identity to to stay in the game. Uh, There can be a purity that there's no higher principle of being a member of the Jewish community that holds them in. If someone didn't engage me, good, I'm out. Okay, let's hear from someone else here.
3: Rabbi, uh, this is Eric. Thank you so much. This has been incredibly enlightening. And I have been particularly a big fan of the analysis that the other participants have, get, have given so far. Um, I wanna circle back on something that you brought up about, uh, your, and by the way, your citations are just amazing, the great quotes. The one thing that I am a little confused because it wasn't mentioned was in the past there's been citations of different examples where different people, figures in, in, the, in the Torah that have been cited as, for example, when you look at leaders, when you look at, um, but I felt like that uh, I didn't hear any examples of any, any figures that have been cited to look at examples of uh, actions or lifestyle reflected truth versus compromise versus something relative true versus uh, somewhere in the middle. Is there people that you've seen that are, you know, people that we look up to in, in the Torah that or that we look at as models of, of compromise versus truth?
0: That is great. That is a great question. Okay. Now, when we normally think of compromise today, Eric, as you know, we normally think of two people in a room debating and they give it a little, give it a little, come to an agreement, they come make a press release that we, hey, we reached an agreement, right? Um, The other type of compromise is kind of an internal deliberation where what I ask for or what I agree to is not a debate or even a discussion. It is me realizing what I can realistically get or realistically ask for. Now, the most famous case in the Torah the most famous case in the Torah of compromise in this model is Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai somehow escapes because the Romans are killing everybody. He escapes by acting like he's dead. And he gets out and he gets a meeting with Vespasian, the Roman leader. And in the meeting with Vespasian, um, Vespasian is impressed with him. And he grants him three requests, famously. Okay, Rabban Gamliel's family, healing for Rav Tzadok. And most famously, give me Yavne. Give me Yavne. Now, all there's a lot of critiques of Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zaka. Give me Yavne. What about Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem? This is our capital. This is our Beit HaMikdash. This is where the Jews live, this is our center. I want Yerushalayim, right? Rabbi Yochanan Zakai says, give me Yavne. He reinvents Judaism, he reinvents Torah in Yavne with the sages. He knows he can't win Jerusalem. So is he gonna go for the gold? Is he gonna, is he gonna go for the number one and get it all or nothing? Or is he gonna make an internal deliberation towards compromise and ultimately, Uh, get something very significant. And so he gets Rabban Gamliel's family saved, he gets healing for Rav Tzadok, and he gets Yavne. And so I think this is a great example of someone who says, um, oh, I am a sellout. I am a sellout to not be saving more lives, to not be saving our holy city, to not be saving the Beit Hamidash, to not be uh, restoring the grandeur of our capital, But this is what I believe I can get. So I'm going to go for that. So that's a Talmudic case I would go for. The most interesting case in Halakha, and I think I've said this before, so excuse me if I have, is that sages don't like to compromise a lot. But as you recall, the machlokit is one member of Chazal says the mezuzah is vertical. The other member of Chazal says, no, the mezuzah is horizontal. And how, how do they, what do they do? Peshara, compromise. The mezuzah, when you walk into a home, is, is on a slant. They agree, and that represents when you walk into the home, the home needs to be a place of compromise. So that is another interesting case. And then you also see with Moshe, Moshe to some degree compromises with God kind of again and again in defense of the people, I don't know if you'd call this compromise or not, I'm kind of thinking out loud, you can tell me if you agree or not, that consider like, consider um, the ego has a half, the golden calf, and Moshe is going to break the first tablets, the luchot, and in the midrash, God is going to say, well done Moshe, thanks for breaking the tablets, you were right, you were right, And then there's kind of a sense of uh, okay, they can't have those, but they shouldn't have nothing. Let's go have another process. So you could call that a lot of different things, right? But some sense of like truth, it's almost like the truth couldn't be sustained on those tablets. The truth had to be destroyed. The first tablets are written by God. The second tablets are written by Moshe. You almost need to break perfect truth and find a kind of Middle ground, an imperfect truth, a truth written in the in the hands in the hands of humans, by the hands of humans, in order to sustain this new level of um, of negotiation between human fallibility and divine mandate. So again, compromise is kind of not the perfect word. It's kind of um, uh, it's kind of um, n- negotiation or adapt adaptability towards vulnerability and imperfection. But I think these points in the Chumash and in the Talmud and and beyond. um, And then of course you get to modern Israeli negotiation as we talked about with the coalitions. I'm sure many of you have written the book Getting to Yes, right? And the premise there is, uh, who was it? Jimmy Carter, was it Jimmy Carter? (laughs) And uh, Anwar Sadat, someone correct me if I'm missing all this. It was a Carter and Sadat and uh, and Begin and Begin. Right. Did I get the three right? Correct. With with Sinai, with Sinai. And it's amazing. Okay, what does Egypt want? They want their Sinai back. Okay, what does Israel want? They want security. So great. Egypt, you get the Sinai back and Israel, you get that it's going to be a demilitarized zone. Right. And so they say like, okay, we're going to make this deal work. It's a great, it's a great example for peace. It's used all over the world. This example of how everyone gets their primary goal. Nobody gets their secondary goal, whatever the case is. But um, uh, anyway, so I, I, um, I hope those are are slightly helpful examples.
3: Well, those are, thank you very much.
4: Hi Rabbi. So I have a question. I, I. You know, around us, we see in the political atmosphere, the rise of absolutism and authoritarianism. And and we see these factions that are successful and profiting, getting what they want by not giving an inch, by, by absolutely not wanting to in, involve themselves with compromise, not even trying to see the other perspective, and so, how do we bring them back to the table? How do we bring them around?
0: Wow, wow, Yehuda, you uh, what a big what a big bold question! I invite people to write in the chat if you also have thoughts on this. How do we um, how do we achieve this? Now, there's a few different theories here, and of course, I don't have the answer. If I uh, if we knew how to do this. Thanks, Matthew, see you. Uh, If we had the answer to this, we would solve world peace. Um, Now, the first answer that some give is you have to dismantle extremists and empower moderates, right? Um, That is one answer that some people give. And so according to them, it means everything like go to war against totalitarians and dismantle them and try to plant democracies. That's what some people do. Or for others, you have to fund moderates and expose extremists on, in the world of social media. Or what some people say in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is, for example, that it will not happen from up top, leaders up top. It will have to happen through grassroots partnership efforts. Or what they also say is that secular people have failed. They say the opposite. It's not, it's not, religious, um, um, it's not the most religiously fervent who are the problem. It's the secularists, because the secularists can't make deals on behalf of the religiously fervent. You need the imams in Gaza, the most intense imams in Gaza, to meet with the most intense rabbis who are settlers, for them to meet and build a relationship. If they can can reach common ground, it will have a whole ripple effect. Um, And so, and, and of course, the most common answer given is relationship, right? We need to figure out how people who see the world totally different are going to talk with each other. So I think the main theses are either dismantle the the absolutists and get moderates in place. That's one thesis. The other thesis is get absolutists to talk to each other to make them less absolute. The third is, no, these people aren't going to change. And you're not going to dismantle them. All you can do is work on the next generation. And that's why education is the most important thing that we think about how the next generation is being cultivated um, and, and um, uh, um, to, um, uh, towards such level of tolerance at the least. Now, the last answer I want to give is beyond the technical, beyond the political, beyond the intellectual. And it comes from someone like Rabbi Menachem Froman, that the problems we're looking at are not intellectual and moral. They are spiritual. What we need is a spiritual revolution, not um, some political process. Now, again, I'm not arguing for any one of these cases, but according to this last approach, the problem is that people have forgotten God. People have forgotten to see the dignity of people. They have forgotten to see their own mortality. They have forgotten to, to, to see the commonality of the human breath. They have lost the deepest spiritual truths. And if we could revive those, um, it, would be a, it, would, it would lead to an enormous healing. If people move from a religious fundamentalism of their own religion towards this deep notion of human solidarity through these divine truths, we could achieve this. Um, So um, I'm curious to hear Yehuda, if any of those speak to you more than another, or if you have another answer to add.
4: I agree with much much of that. And yeah, it's a multifaceted problem that's going to take a lot of solutions but I think that there is a big spiritual sickness in the world and too many people are disconnected from God. I think that explains the empathy problem and a lot of the social problems. And yeah, so so I'll go with the last answer.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny, Yehuda, because when we talk about God, what most people think like, oh, I believe in a God and that's gonna make the world better, which of course makes no sense. I think we're talking about a transformation of self through the vehicle of divinity, when we think about the humility that emerges if you encounter God, when we think about the, um, not only the humility, but the expansiveness, the expansion, the expansion that emerges when we allow for divinity to exist in the world. Um, Godliness can lead to fundamentalism also, of course, or it can lead to this type of moral refinement that helps us to see other people more deeply. Thank you, Yehuda, for that. Yes, as Sheryl writes, of course, yeah, that much of the evil we see today is done in God's name. This is This is really an idolatry. It's an idolatry where God is a narrowing of self. It's a narrowing of consciousness. It's a narrowing of moral responsibility rather than an expansive one. Um, this, is, this, is, this is really an idolatry in the name of God that essentially makes the self the arbiter of truth, the self, the end. Um, and so uh, re- it's not that religion itself is the problem or religion itself is the answer. It is good religion is the answer and bad religion is the problem, right? And so um, the role of religion in, um, in this form of compromise we're promoting is crucial. I've been to some of these global conferences, um, like at the World Economic Forum in Davos, where they bring people together, and magical things can happen in these spaces, People with enormous power, huge platforms. Okay, let's hear from one more person today. Truth versus compromise. Okay, so I'm going to give us a heads up on the topic for next week. Um, Pam, if you, if you don't mind posting the schedule one more time in case somebody joined late. I'm sorry this month has had some weird uh, adjustments to schedule. We will not be together next week, but we will back be together on July 6th at our normal time. Um, and oh, and I see Michael's a hand up. We'll come back to Michael in just a second. Next week, I mean, not next week, in two weeks, it's going to be the Baal Shem Tov versus the Vilna Gaon. The best versus the Gras, um, which some might call rationalism versus mysticism. Others might call mysticism of the mind versus mysticism of the soul. Yes, Michael, last word from you here.
1: Is, is not when we say to search for truth, is truth just not a synonym to God? And it's really the same thing. Our search for God and religion is to find truth and find meaning and how to deal with it. And so are we really is not really the same thing. And for an atheist, for example, um, they don't accept God because they believe in a more mechanical or some other looking at the universe. But but, isn't truth and God really the same thing?
0: Michael, That's it's a great question to end on. Um, if you think about it, in the Haskalah, in the emergence of modernity, we have the Enlightenment. And Enlightenment means... Um, true. It, it has to do with our attachment to wisdom and truth, and yet the idea there is light, light, enlightenment, um, and so the notion that truth is connected to light, and we think about divine infinite light, and that also being synonymous with in enlightenment, the notion of absolute truth or absolute wisdom, um, that we can most certainly say one dimension of truth uh, of God is truth, and yet. Emmet, is not a name for God in Judaism. Shalom is a name of God, right? Shalom is one of the names of God in the Torah. Peace is a name of God. Truth is not a name of God, even though we say truth is a seal of God. And so it's a great question to end on. Um, If we come closer to truth, are we we coming closer to God um, that may itself be true? See y'all in two weeks. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Can't wait to see you soon.